0: Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown. Uh, With me again is my friend Matthew.
1: Hello, Mike. You came back again. Yes, we're just talking about how much I don't like the tragically hip...
0: Yeah, well, and next week we will have a different (laughs) co-host. I'm kidding. You can have whatever taste in music, things, video you like. You don't have to like the things that I like. I know. That's good. (laughs) chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your two. grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. It's that big chunk
1: of fudge.
0: The region in the South Nahanni River played host to several unexplained disturbing occurrences in the first half of the 20th century. Between 1905 and 1945 in the remote and rugged wilderness in the lower west corner of the Mackenzie Mountains in the Northwest Territories, as well as other events, there were at least 44 people who went missing under mysterious circumstances. Most unsettling of all were the four bodies that were found during that time in three separate incidents. All of the corpses had been decapitated and their heads were never recovered, earning the area the ominous nickname, the Valley of the Headless Men. No one knows who was responsible for these horrific mutilations or what became of the other missing people. This is Dark Poutine, episode 181, The Headless Men of the Nahani Valley. Canada is a big place and the second largest country in the world. Taking into account land area and bodies of water within our borders, Canada's total area is 9,984,670 square kilometers. And it's roughly 6.1% of the Earth's land mass.
1: You know, when I moved back from Europe, it. It sort of struck me how big Canada is Mm -hmm. because I, you know, I work from home, but, but my office is actually three time zones away. Oh, wow. And if my family tries to visit me in Vancouver, it's only like a half hour shorter flight from Ontario than it is to like the UK. It's insanity.
0: Canadians as a people don't really take up a lot of space with only four people per square kilometer. Although in urban areas, it's much more densely populated. Canada is 80% uninhabited and roughly 90% of Canada's population of just over 38 million people live within 160 kilometers of the border we share with the United States. There are many places within our border still that it is safe to say no human being has ever set foot. In Canada's northern territories like Yukon, Nunavut, and in particular the Northwest Territories where this story takes place, the population density drops to negligible levels. With just over 45,000 people living in the Northwest Territories today, that means that roughly only 0.12% of the country's population lives there. When the events of the stories in this episode began in 1905, there was less than half of that. And due to a mass exodus south as the gold rush ended, the region's population fell off sharply to only 5,000 people in the 1940s. According to Parks Canada, Nahanni National Park Reserve is a UNESCO World Heritage Site globally renowned for its geologic landforms. An incomparable northern wilderness, the area harbours sheer granite spires, vast alpine plateaus and, at its heart, the South Nahanni, a Canadian heritage river. This great spirit water thunders at Virginia Falls and has carved the deepest canyons in Canada. Natural labyrinths of the North Nahanni Karst are among the most spectacular landforms of this type, and the mineral springs form Canada's largest tufa mounds. Author Pierre Burton said that the nickname Nahanni means people over there far away. He described the area in his 1947 Maclean's Magazine article on the mysteries surrounding Nahanni he described the area in his 1947 McLean's article on the, in, on the mysteries surrounding the Nahanni. Burton wrote, Take your map of Canada and find the corner where British Columbia, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories meet. Now go a few score miles directly north. You're looking down into the fantastic Never Neverland of Headless Valley. There, between the Mackenzie Mountains and the Selwyn Range, lies the 200-mile-long twisted river system of the South Nahanni, the supposed haunt of headhunters and gigantic prehistoric mastodons, and the actual spawning ground of stupendous myths. The South Nahanni is a spectacular enough river in its own right. Its falls are almost twice the height of Niagara. Its gorges are 1,500 feet deep is fast becoming the most talked about river in North America. Around it cluster more rumor and legend and fewer facts than around any comparable wa- comparable water system on the continent. This is a pretty good showing for an uh, this is a pretty good showing for an I what is wrong with my fucking tongue today? This is a pretty good showing for an area that attracts the merest trickle of travelers, especially when you consider that a healthy proportion of these travelers meets a sticky end. And remember, this is in 1947 that he wrote this. So right. more people go there today. Yeah. But you had some comments. But yeah,
1: it's it. I actually hadn't heard of this part before. Mm-hmm. And then I looked it up. Yeah. And found out that in I think it was like 2009, the government expanded the park, like the official status, sure, by two and a half million hectares. So that, that's quite large. So it's now three million hectares. So yeah. so like okay, so for perspective, Sue's one of our listeners mm-hmm. in Wales. In Wales, that's like a million hectares larger than Wales. Wow. And we have a new listener from Sweden, Malin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Maland. yes, We're glad you're out of the hospital, Maland. So, that it's essentially the size of Sweden. So, imagine like all of Wales and some of Scotland or all of Sweden. Yeah. With nobody living in it. That's the size of this park. Yeah. Right? It's <laughs> beautiful.
0: Yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> and it is gorgeous. One of the features of the Nahanni Valley is its tropical feel. Sometimes it's referred to as a northern Eden. Although far north, it's reported that its vegetation is lush and the animal life is plenty most likely fed by the warm waters of the kraus hot springs named after mary and gus kraus who resided there between 1940 and 1971 from a 1947 time magazine article quote prospectors told of a lush almost tropical country where the river never froze even when the temperature sank to 50 below in the surrounding mountains great herds of fat deer and caribou they said cropped the green pastures Last week, the tales had grown so fantastic that the Vancouver Suns columnist Jack Scott burlesqued the Nahanni as, quote, a bodiless valley where ripe bananas hang from the boughs of pine trees and dusky native girls swim about in the deep warm pools, end quote. The Dene people, the indigenous group who'd lived in the region for thousands of years, had some concerns about the area. Joel Hibbard, owner of Nahani Wild, a wilderness adventure company that takes tourists on canoe trips in the region, told Fodor's Chloe Burge, quote, I once heard a Decho chief tell stories of an ancient giant of Gantha, rabbit kettle hot springs, who would cook his food in the springs, end quote. According to author Peter Hammerson in his book, Legends of the Nahani Valley, the area was haunted by evil spirits and the Dene avoided the valley out of fear for their lives. From Hammerson's book, Over the years, a number of native hunters spurred by bravery, foolishness, or desperation wandered into the valley in search of game. The few who returned regaled their fellows with all manner of hair-raising tales. At night, while their compatriots crouched around the campfire, these survivors told of encounters with an evil spirit who haunted the valley, whose unearthly shrieks echoed throughout the canyons on windy nights. Others described a race of fearsome, hairy giants who dwelled in caves carved from the canyon walls. Led by a beautiful, pale-skinned chiefess. these primitive mountain men killed and ate anyone who trespassed on their territory. Quote. Also in his McLean's Magazine article, Pierre Burton mentioned that there were real dangers in the region, too. According to the U.S. Geographical Survey, virulent meningitis once wiped out an Indian village in the area, quote. By the early 1900s, the influx of people seeking gold in the Klondike had ground to a halt, and the population was now on the decline. Some people still came in search of their fortunes, though. Two of the gold-obsessed fortune hunters, willing to brave the wilderness, were a pair of Métis brothers, Willie and Frank McLeod. They were drawn to Fort Liard by their younger brother Fred, who shared tales of indigenous miners bringing golden nuggets as big as hen's eggs into the fort for assay. There was still, they thought, gold in them their hills, and the McLeod brothers wanted to cash in, so they headed north. It's unclear whether the brothers were aware of the folklore and legends told by the local indigenous populations before their arrival. Willie set out from Edmonton and trekked to Fort Nelson in British Columbia, where he was joined by Frank. The pair then made their way north to connect with young Fred at Fort Liard. Their first trip, panning along the Nahanni in 1904, was mildly successful. Some of the gold they panned was made into a fine pocket watch, which they presented to their brother Fred. As winter set in, they decided to head back south to Edmonton, intent on returning when the climate was more hospitable. Although it was still winter, Frank and Willie couldn't wait any longer, so they set out and toiled at gold panning along the river, coming to Fort Simpson with a tiny amount of the precious metal to show for their efforts. Planning to head further into Nahanni, hoping to improve on the previous summer's success, they went to work for the Hudson's Bay Company in an effort to earn money to fund their next expedition in the spring. The brothers were unable to make much headway financially, blowing many of their earnings, gambling with trappers, hunters, and others who were wintering at the fort. A Scotsman named Robert Weir saw Fred's gold watch and asked where he'd gotten such a fine thing. Fred said that it had come from the gold his brothers had panned that year. Weir immediately became interested, joining the McLeods on their next foray up the river and even paid for some much-needed equipment. In the spring of 1905, Willie and Frank McLeod and their new partner, Robert Weir, headed deeper into the Nahanni. They told everyone, including Brother Fred, that they would return late fall with packs heavy with gold. When his brothers didn't arrive for the winter, as they had planned, Fred was not overly concerned for their safety. He assumed the trio had been working a successful gold strike. Fred knew Frank and Willie had been raised as competent outdoorsmen, just as he had, and were more than capable of living off the land by way of their significant wilderness survival skills. Two years later, 1907, there were still no sign of Frank, Willie, or Robert Weir. The family began to worry. It seems there was an endless stream of McLeod brothers as another brother, this one named Charlie, was joined by yet another younger brother, Danny, for the trek to Fort Liard where they met up with Fred. A searching party of six, including a mounted police officer named Poole Field and a pair of the Lafferty brothers, was rounded up. They hopped into their canoes and headed up the Nahanni River in May of 1908 to see if they could find Frank and Willie. After navigating some particularly harrowing rapids and traveling a number of miles without seeing any signs of humanity, let alone Frank, Willie, or Mr. Weir, the group was considering turning back. All of a sudden, the river calmed and they entered a lush valley. Right away they noticed a bit of clearing that showed trees that had been cut by axes. From Legends of the Nahanni Valley by Hammerson Peters, quote, no sooner had the party stepped onto the riverbank than Charlie spied a dog sled runner lying in the grass. On it was an undated message penciled in one of his brother's scrawl. We have found a fine prospect, it said. End quote. There were no other signs of Willie and Frank there, so the search party continued onward up the river, slightly more hopeful, but not overly so. At the north end of the valley, the group came upon another clearing, and the remnants of what appeared to be an encampment It was there that the search party discovered the bodies of Frank and Willie McLeod, at least most of them. It appeared from the positioning of the bodies that the pair had been attacked in the night as they slept. From Hammerson Peters' Legends of the Nahanni Valley, One of them lay on its back, rolled neatly in its blanket, as if its former owner had died in his sleep. The other was sprawled out on its chest, its blanket twisted about haphazardly, one of its bony arms reaching out toward a rusted rifle which leaned against a nearby spruce tree. The manner in which the bodies were displayed suggested a nocturnal ambush. The first man to be attacked, the one lying on his back, was evidently killed in his sleep before he had a chance to defend himself, while the second had leapt from his bedroll in a vain attempt to reach his rifle before being struck down. The oddest thing was that the skulls were missing from the skeletonized remains. Even after a thorough search of the area, the brothers' heads were nowhere to be found. They'd simply vanished. There was no sign of the Scotsman Robert Weir, either. Most of the supplies they'd set off with were still in the crates in the encampment, save for their picks and shovels. Their canoe was missing as well, and that was never found. It appeared, not that it mattered much now to them, that the brothers really had scored. There was also a crate containing, quote, "...extraordinarily rich samples of gold-bearing quartz." End quote. It looked as though Frank and Willie had met with foul play. Perhaps Weir's greed had gotten the better of him and he'd killed the brothers as they slept to make off with their gold. But if that were the case, why hadn't he taken all of it with him? And why hadn't he taken the supplies? And what had become of the Scotsman? No one had seen him in two years either. And best of all, if Weir or anyone else had taken the heads of Frank and Willie McLeod, why would they do that? The whereabouts of Robert Weir are still unknown, more than a century later. A body was discovered a year later near Fort Simpson and presumed to be Weir, but that was never confirmed to certainty. And that no gold was found with the body has also raised questions that remain unanswered, chief of which is the corpse's true identity. Some people believed that Robert Weir was alive and well for some time afterward. There were reported sightings of Weir at various places around the territories and into British Columbia. There were even reports that he was living high on the hog here in Vancouver, thanks to the gold he'd stolen from the McLeod brothers. But nothing was ever confirmed. It was all rumor, fueled by gossip, after the discovery of the McLeod brothers' bodies. After an investigation by the Northwest Mounted Police, and it's unclear how they came to this determination, they decided that Frank and Willie had simply died of starvation in their bedrolls, trapped in the valley, after losing their only means of transportation, their canoe. Others believe that it might have been some kind of illness that killed them, perhaps scurvy or something else related to malnutrition. The McLeod family disputed this, stating this was an impossibility thanks to the health and capabilities of the brothers. The deaths of Frank and Willie McLeod remain unexplained more than a century later. Since the discovery of their bodies, the spot has had a couple of new nicknames as well, including Dead Man Valley, or most famously, Headless Valley. Even though the tale of Frank, Willie, and Robert Weir ends here, there is more to this story, and we'll get into it right after this short break. And we're back. What are your thoughts to this point, Matthew? Uh, What happened to Willie and Frank McLeod? And what happened to Robert Weir?
1: Hmm. Well, it's difficult because... Canadian wilderness takes no prisoners. You know this. Right. Right. I actually have a bit of a story. In the late 70s, or early 80s, I'm not sure which it was. My father was um, moose hunting in northern Ontario. Okay. And he had sort of um, canoed and portaged a couple days into the into the wilderness mm-hmm. and met two brothers, but only one was alive. Two German sort of adventurers, and I guess their canoe had capsized. and then one brother died of hypothermia. Oh wow! And it took my dad like a couple of days to get back out. Right. To I was going to say flag down a float plane. I don't know how he did it, but yeah, <laughs> float plane back into the forest. And my father was a really good outdoorsman, so he knew he could actually tell them where they were. Yeah. Right. And these Germans were, for all intents and purposes, they were quite the adventurers, and they uh just either one brother didn't make it so you know when you're in a place like this it can be dangerous mm-hmm. what happened to these guys i don't know like i was sort of thinking well maybe they died of hypothermia or starvation or something right. yeah and maybe like an animal took their head but I, you think like animals would scatter more bones than just the skull right so i actually like to think that it was like that chief tests and the giants right mm. in my head i call her zelda You know, and I I think maybe she like went down to the more populated area of Canada and saw how horrible it was and went back up and was like, we have to guard our land. And so she and the giants like kill people off and take their heads.
0: Oh, there you go. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it's true. It has to be true (laughs) because we said it. (laughs) Rumors swirled all over the western part of Canada that within the Headless Valley were massive veins of gold discovered by Frank and Willie McLeod. The year after their discovery, another man, Martin Jorgensen, heard the tales and in search of his own fortune in gold came to the Nahani Valley in 1910. Jorgensen, too, was an experienced outdoorsman in the peak of health. He'd been prospecting in the Northwest Territories for some time and decided he'd take a run at bringing in the motherlode that many presume still lay in the valley where the bodies were found. He too disappeared and authorities began to wonder about his whereabouts. Two years later, in 1913, an indigenous guide came into a trading post in the Yukon telling of a large Scandinavian man who had paid him a good sum of gold to guide him into the Nahanni region. Sure that this was a report about Jorgensen, Northwest Mounted Policeman Sergeant Boole Field put together a new search party to go and search for the Norwegian. Sergeant Field spent the next year searching for Jorgensen without success. Deep in the Nahanni Valley on September 28, 1914, Sergeant Field and his search party discovered a man made trail that led into the forest off a creek that fed into the Flat River. There, the searchers discovered the remains of a cabin that had been gutted by fire some time before. Nearby lay the headless skeleton of Martin Jorgensen. The details of what was discovered there vary from story to story, and the truth has been lost to the ages. The area was thus renamed...
1: Murder Creek. <laughs> of course, it was. Look at look at what we do as humans. Yeah, we have this beautiful park, right? Mm-hmm. We go in there. We've named it Headless Valley. Yeah, and then we have Murder Creek. Right. You know what's what's next? Like disembowel Pond or defenestration Ridge.
0: I love defenestration.
1: Defenestration. I'm always Ridge. a
0: fan of a movie in which someone has defenestrated. Or, or
1: Hangman's Tree.
0: Hangman's Tree. That's probably more common. Yeah. From Hammerson Peters' Legends of the Nahanni Valley, quote, Poolfield in one of his letters made the startling claim that the Mounties did, in fact, determine who had murdered Martin Jorgensen, writing that he and the police just about had things all set to arrest the murderer when he died in California, End quote. This has never been substantiated by anyone else, and many consider that, due to the headless nature of Jorgensen's corpse, he and the McLeod boys might have met the same killer, Again, no one really knows what happened to Martin Jorgensen either, or why his head was missing. The strange occurrences in the region continued. Many connected to gold and supposed mysterious treasure maps. The stories penetrated Canadian pop culture in such a way that in 1921, Canadian author Algernon Blackwood wrote a fictional story based on the happenings indicating Wendigo as the culprit in The Deaths in the Valley. The story Valley of the Beasts was summarized by a user who goes only by Tom on the site Goodreads.com. A cruel and brutal hunter by the name of Grimwood is tracking moose in the wilderness aided by his guide, a native. He shows contempt for his assistant, and after an altercation where he assaults him, is left alone. He pursues his quarry into the Valley of the Beasts, left only with meager supplies and a talisman left to him by the guide. Soon he encounters the full majesty of the forest. The beasts surround him in a terrifying organic force which reveals to him his powerlessness in the face of nature. In fear, he calls out to the god of the valley, but ultimately it denies him assistance. He is saved by the guide who he so cruelly treated. This encounter with the wilderness and its inhabitants changes him for life. Quote. The gold rushes continued over the years and the region saw a few smaller booms of prospectors coming for their slice of a pie that might not even exist. The Headless Valley continued to take more victims. Young May Lafferty, a member of a hunting party, disappeared in the region in 1926. One moment she was there, the next she was gone. It was reported by one indigenous man in the area months later that he had seen May, stark naked and scaling its steep rock face. Knowing that there was a white woman missing in the area, the man considered pursuing her but decided not to, thinking that some devil of the forest had possessed her and was trying to lure him to his own demise. May was never seen again, and her body was never found. As well as May's story, there were also other tales of the Nahanni driving prospectors, hunters, and trappers irretrievably mad. In 1927, the bones of a man named Yukon Fisher turned up on Bennett Creek, near where the McLeod brothers had staked a gold claim many years prior. Fisher was an outlaw on the run from the Mounties and had been seen buying ammunition for his rifle using large gold nuggets taken from a place he refused to name. In 1928, a prospector named Angus Hall offered to scout ahead for his group. He was never seen again, despite an extensive search that began on the day of his disappearance. According to Pierre Burton, there was also an unexplained death of a man named Phil Powers, whose charred bones were found in the ashes of his cabin on the Flat River in 1931. The RCMP investigated his death and blamed a faulty stovepipe for burning down the cabin and cremating Powers. But prospectors have been quick to point up several flaws in this theory. In the first place, Powers was an experienced prospector who, in common with all sourdoughs, built his cabin so there was plenty of room for the stovepipe to go through the roof without touching the timbers. Further, if the pipe had ignited the roof, causing it to cave in, the poles and dirt would fall inside the cabin, helping to extinguish the fire and leaving several charred logs. The fire that destroyed Powers' cabin was so intensely hot that it left only the bottom log and very little of Powers'. Moreover, Powers' cache was untouched except that the cans of gasoline which he needed to power his boat were empty. It has been suggested that somebody standing outside the window shot Powers as he lay on his bunk and then burned the cabin down. End quote. Joe Mulholland and Bill Epier went missing in 1936. A man who'd known them spent years searching for them but found only their burned-out cabin 160 kilometers above Virginia Falls on Glacier Lake. There was no sign of the two men, and still today, no one knows what happened to them. In 1940, an aeronautical engineer named William Gilbertson was exploring the area, and he was found dead in his cabin near the Nahani Valley. That same year, another brawny Scandinavian, Ollie Holmberg, went missing, never to be seen again. In 1945, another body whose identity has been disputed was found in a sleeping bag. Its head, too, had been removed. However, it was later reported that it was coyotes who dragged it off. Again, though, this has not been verified. There were other strange deaths and disappearances in the area over the years. As I mentioned at the top of the show, at least 44 people went missing in the years between the deaths of the McLeod brothers and the end of the Second World War. Author Hammerson Peters wrote extensively about Dene beliefs that a pantheon of dark spirits make their home in the Nahanni Valley and that it is a place to be avoided, citing an article called On the Superstitions of the Dene Indians by Canadian Jesuit missionary, Father Julius Jett. Peters wrote that Jett, quote, divided the supernatural beings of Dene mythology into five broad categories. Number one, greater spirits. Number two, the souls. Number three, shadow souls. Number four, the familiar demons of the shamans. And finally, number five, the Zaltara. Much like a wendigo, a spirit we talked about in episode 25, our episode about Swift Runner, the naked Zaltara, according to Peters, is a wild man which is spirit until it takes on physical form when, quote, it sometimes appears as a creature similar to a dragon or whale. More often, however, it, it assumes the form of some sort of goblin. Was it some sort of supernatural being like the Neked Zaltara that killed and made off with the heads of at least four victims and perhaps abducted another 44? Theories are endless, but some are really interesting. Some have pointed to an unnamed serial killer who might have been active in the region during the time frame of the disappearances, but this is a stretch. Albert Johnson, the mad trapper of Rat River, has also been paid some attention. Our show covered him in episode 103. Johnson's antics took place many hundreds of kilometers north near Fort McPherson, so blaming him seems like a bit of a reach, too. Some theorize that Europeans were murdered by indigenous peoples resentful with being colonized and that their sacred lands were being exploited by the invaders. There is zero proof of that theory, too, and it is most likely complete and utter balderdash. One Redditor, invoking the Highlander movies, speculated that it could be the Quickening, as there can be only one. Perhaps it was the Kurgan taking the heads of people. Or maybe it was Bigfoot. Or Aliens. There have been numerous UFO sightings in the area over the years. Better yet, maybe it was Bigfoot riding in a UFO. Perhaps it was hollow earth dwellers hungry for human brains coming up out of their holes to take unsuspecting folks when they weren't paying attention. There are also theories of prehistoric bear dog cryptids known as wahila. According to cryptids.fandom.com, the wahila or saber wolf is a large wolf-like creature said to inhabit Alaska and the Northwest Territories. I guess they skipped the Yukon. It is larger and more heavily built than normal wolves, with a wide head and proportionately larger feet, with long and pure white fur. The animal's hind legs are said to be shorter than the front legs and the tracks show widely spaced toes. Witnesses describe it as being 3.5 feet to 4 feet at the shoulder. That's pretty tall. Wahili are never seen in packs, so they are presumably solitary. Native legends describe the wahila as an evil spirit with supernatural powers and describe it as killing people and removing their heads. It has been theorized that the wahila is an amphicinoid, a prehistoric carnivore of the Miocene and Oligocene, a dire wolf, a large wolf of the Pleistocene, a prehistoric hyena, or a completely new species of canine. It goes on to say, the wahila is native to the Nahani or Headless Valley, as it is known for ripping people's heads off, it is mostly in Native American legend, but it was cited by an American mechanic, Frank Graves, who described it as a wolf on steroids, most likely because of its build slash size. Hey, if a cryptid site on the web and Frank the mechanic says we as exist, I believe them. It's on the internet. It has to be true, right? I think Karen on Facebook needs a Nobel Prize for her theory on the COVID-19 vaccine causing you to grow gills like a fish and fart laughing gas. All jokes aside, there are some real possibilities here. Perhaps it was some form of disease like uh, that virulent form of bacterial meningitis that was mentioned earlier. Or even something as awful as rabies. The heads could have been carried off by animals later. Apparently, after death, the human skull acts like a sort of bony Tupperware container filled with slowly rotting brains, the smell of which brings scavenging animals from far and wide who will take a skull off elsewhere to try and get at the goodies inside. Perhaps it was just arrogance and misadventure that killed some of these people? As long as we've been a species, we tempt nature, claiming we can outsmart her, but time and time again, she proves to have us bested. Mm. You can visit the Nahani Valley to go rafting, canoeing, fishing, hunting, hiking, and camping with and without a guide. But call me crazy. Something tells me it might be wise to leave your dreams of a gold strike at home. Mm. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 181, The Headless Men of the Nahani Valley. What are your thoughts, Matthew?
1: Still think of Zina and the Giant. You, oh,
0: you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Zina seems to be busy. Yeah. I, I, I. Why I, isn't she busy anymore, though? Like, I mean, it was only in the first half.
1: Of who this. knows? Yeah, I, I would actually like to go to this place. I, I would too. It's so beautiful. So it, it, people are listening. Look it up. It's actually gorgeous. Yeah, and it has. It's it's sort of far north, but not so far north that the the foliage isn't happening anymore. It, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing.
0: I gotcha. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird. Like we mentioned that due to the hot springs there's yeah. more foliage and stuff like that it's
1: land of the lost exactly We're the sleace, <laughs> it, it, the it looks like stack. the land of the
0: lost <laughs> <laughs> silly sleaze stack anyway so that was fun
1: yeah that's that was kind I of I like a, that story that was a good one
0: yeah and uh again a little bit of a palate cleanser we had uh some horrific domestic murders last week so
1: La- last week was my least favorite person that we've discussed
0: well yeah I'm I, I mean wasn't... there's
1: there's been a lot of them but yeah. I really didn't like this one
0: yeah basil Ugh. yeah I I always thought of uh basal cell carcinoma when I was <laughs> listening hearing his name in my head what's that well it's a type of skin cancer oh nice yeah so I mean my dad had it that's how I know that okay yeah he just had it on his forehead and
1: did they did they cut it off?
0: Yeah, they did. They they had to chop it out. And because dad's a veterinarian,
1: did he do he, it himself?
0: No, he didn't do it himself, uh-uh. but he was awake while they were doing it and watched via a mirror system. Wow. So he was able to watch that. And also, something interesting, when they had to remove that part, they had to remove part of his eyebrow. Mm-hmm. So he didn't look like a weird person with only a portion of an eyebrow. They took a graft of some of his hair from the back of his head and put it where his eyebrow is. And now his hair for his eyebrow grows like your head hair. So he has to keep it Wow. Trimmed. <laughs> Otherwise he's gonna have like hippie hippie eyebrow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he could braid his eyebrow.
0: A single hippie eyebrow. Is it his left eyebrow or his right eyebrow? I can't remember. I think it is his left, wow. if I remember. No, it might be his right I don't remember.
1: My great grandmother got like cancer on her nose. Oh God. But she was like 97 when it happened. Mm -hmm. I'm like, are you going to, like, what are you going to do? She's like, nothing. Yeah. She's like, believe me, it's not going to get me. Something else is. Right.
0: (laughs) I, I guess as we get older, and I mean, I don't, we shouldn't go super depressing here, but as we get older, our chances of getting some form of cancer pretty much come to 100%. Oh, nice. Yeah. Especially men with prostate. Oh. Yeah. So males are, are very apt to have some form of prostate I have cancer. to
1: look after I'm doing kegels right now. Kegels? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I do that too. It's actually- I'm a, doing it right
1: now. Can you see it?
0: No, I would rather
1: not. <laughs> no, I can you see it in my face. Concentration. I can,
0: I can see it in your face. <laughs> and I can also see a very weird smirk on your face too. As you're- Thinking about me, thinking about your
1: goals No, e- e- men, you have to get your prostate checked.
0: Right. Yep. It's, um. It's unpleasant.
1: Uh, well, I guess. Depends on who Dep- you are. <laughs> I'm not offering to do it for anyone.
0: No. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's important. So wh- we were talking about prostate health earlier mm. and, uh, I am into this thing called adaptogens now, which are just different types of foods, superfoods that will add to your overall health. And one of those is
1: cacao. Superfoods? Do they wear little capes?
0: They wear little, so there's little blueberries, little blueberries and capes. Oh, nice. But uh, one of those things is cacao.
1: Cacao, cacao.
0: Which is chocolate, where we, what makes chocolate. And so I am eating two squares of 70% or better cacao chocolate every day and uh doing it for my prostate health. So I have a good reason.
1: To eat chocolate. To eat chocolate. What's the difference between cacao and cocoa?
0: Well, cocoa is, uh it's like hot cocoa, are you talking about? Yeah, it's like a
1: chocolatey drink. Yeah. Right? Well,
0: I think that's a direct, like... Okay, cocoa but, is made with cacao. Okay, I think that because cocoa is easier to pronounce, mm-hmm. that's why it ended up. Okay, that. that.
2: But C- cacao,
0: uh, uh, as in it, as opposed to Coca, which is something entirely different. Coca Cola, no, the cocaine plant.
1: Oh, Coca. Okay.
0: Yeah, and that's why Coca Cola was named it,
1: such. It had the cocaine in it.
0: It used to have the cocaines. Can you imagine? I really love this Coca-Cola. I can't stop drinking it. And why do I feel like I need to pick around on the rug? Because...
1: Coke should stop with all these fancy flavors they have. Just either put cocaine back in it or fuck off.
0: I actually like uh, Diet Coke. Look, listen to this. Matthew loves Diet Coke. I have a bottle right here. He drinks a lot of Diet Coke. And I quite enjoy... Diet Coke myself, but I prefer Coke
1: Zero. I'd like Diet Coke just for the taste of it, as the slogan goes.
0: Just for the taste of it. Diet Coke. I guess we should do some voicemails here. We it. So last week, we had that asshole Michael Brown call in and say that there were no voicemails. And we got some this week. This week, we got a
1: lot of voicemails. Which is great.
0: Which is very, very good. And we won't be able to play them all this week, but... Um, if you folks keep up the volume of voicemails.
1: That would be awesome.
0: That would be fantastic because A, it gives us a bunch to go with. And it also gives us backups for when we have a dry week. So. Yeah. And dryness does come. I guess you can use Vaseline for
1: that. I don't know. Helps the healing begin. So are we going (laughs) to randomly, are are we going to randomly choose some? Well, yeah, let's do that. Okay. So the first one.
0: Oh, by the way, if you want to send us a voicemail, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six 877 327 5786 or 1-877-D-A-R-K-P-T-N. P-T-N. And um, the first one comes to us from somebody who is named, I believe it's Mary, from Newmarket, Ontario.
2: Hi, guys. It's Mary from Newmarket. Just love your show. This was a particularly good episode, always thought-provoking. And I'm enjoying the show even more with Matthew on board. In fact, I finally became a Patreon member. So you guys keep on rocking and go take a shit in your hat.
0: Well, wow. I didn't expect that at the end. I thought she was going to be a, a quite a proper.
1: No. Mary Welsh from Newmarket. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mary. And yeah, you get and, an early
1: Patreon shout out because. And, and thank you for the compliment.
0: Yeah. Uh, actually let's do Mary's Patreon shout out yeah. right now because you had some thoughts
1: Mary. on. Mary. So I think the Mars factory is a new market. Okay. Yeah. So I think Mary, and they make, um, do you remember uh Hubba Bubba? I love Hubba Bubba g- bubblegum. So it has to like blow proper bubbles. Right. Correct. So yeah. Mary is an expert bubble blower. Oh, well there you and go. And she, she does random tests of Hubba Bubba to make sure you can j- blow big uh, bubblegum. Wow! Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, thanks, Mary, for testing the gum for us. (laughs) Thanks, thanks for being a patron as well.
0: Yeah, and thank you so much for your voicemail. All right, next up, oh boy, man, there's a lot of them here. So, let's see who we have next. I don't know. This is, uh, this could be someone from Saskatchewan. Hey guys,
2: uh, Dawson Collins from fields somewhere in Saskatchewan. Uh, I called about this time last year and left voicemail you guys played because I was out cutting green feed. Well, I'm doing the same shit, and unfortunately, it hasn't got any better. So, anyways, just want to say thanks for uh, keeping me entertained again during all this uh, all this time, and hopefully um, things are slowly starting to get better out in B.C. with COVID and everything. It's pretty much open here in Saskatchewan you now, so anyway, boys, Take a shit in your hat.
0: Thanks again. Bye. Well, there you go. It sounds like someone having a tough time with the pandemic in Ugh. Saskatchewan. So, I mean, that makes sense. It, it it hasn't been. Did he say Fields in Saskatchewan? What an ironic name for a place in Saskatchewan.
1: I thought he said somewhere in Saskatchewan. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Dawson. But, yeah, I don't know. Is, is, is Dawson City in Saskatchewan? No. Huh. Where's Dawson City? It's
0: in the Yukon, I don't know.
1: Well, I think, well, it I think in it's BC. in the U- it's in the Yukon
0: or BC. Yeah, I like
1: Saskatchewan.
0: I like Saskatchewan. Have you been to Saskatchewan?
1: Many a time.
0: I did an emergency landing in Saskatchewan one time. So did with I with a plane. So
1: did I. The windshield flew out of the cockpit. Ah, uh, oh wow, that's and, that's quite dangerous. And we landed in Regina. Yep,
0: that's where I landed too. And I think I told this story
1: before. Oh. And I had to like sleep. I don't think you've told this I had to sleep on the floor of the Regina airport for like six hours for another oh. flight. Oh my gosh. And while I was reboarding my plane... I stated, well, that's another place that ends in Gina that I'm never returning to, but um, <laughs> oh, the town itself is much better than the airport. Yeah. They have this lovely little section of, of Regina with like nice old houses and Saskatoon is lovely as well. I don't know. I like it. It's um, it's a good place. I stayed in
0: Regina on my way back from Nova Scotia when I drove across the country. Okay. Yeah. I liked
1: it. Yeah. Yeah, people are nice as well.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I found pretty much everywhere I went in Canada, people were nice. Except for Toronto. No, people were nice to me in Toronto too. Really? Uh, yeah, they were really nice. Wow. I must, yeah, I must have one of those faces, I don't know. But people are
1: especially nice in the prairies, I find.
0: on the In the prairies, yeah, they, they've been. It's like just
1: down to earth well, people.
0: It's probably because there's so few of them, they're happy to see somebody. Maybe. It could be. That's the way us Nova Scotians are too. It's like, oh, look,
1: it's someone different. Oh, you're from away.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's someone different. Thank goodness. I'm sick of looking at Aunt Mary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mary, Mary, why are you bugging? All right. Let's see. Thanks, Dawson, for the call.
0: All right. Here's a quick one. It looks like from Belleville, Ontario. Hi, my name is Mary Ellen Gedette from Belleville, Ontario. I love your show, Mike and Matt. I call you the M&M Brothers. Uh, keep up the good work. Go shit in your hat. Thank you. Bye now. Uh,
1: thank you. There you go. So, yeah. M&M Brothers. The M&M Brothers. Um, M&Ms make friends. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, in, I'm all singing today. You are all singing. And I don't, I can't sing, but my mother always said just because you can't sing, it doesn't mean you shouldn't. D-
0: exactly, Obie. I didn't mean to do that. Uh. I have never been to Belleville, I don't think. No, I mean, the little
1: name means beautiful town.
0: Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Being. <laughs> Belleville. Yeah, the French <laughs> thing. Is that French speaking in Belleville? No. I don't think it is. There are portions of Ontario that are French speaking.
1: but uh, Yeah, the parts that essentially border Quebec. Quebec, <laughs> right?
0: yeah. And yeah, New, New Brunswick is the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Actually New Brunswick is the only and I've said this a million times but in case somebody didn't hear me. New Brunswick is the only actual bilingual province in Canada.
1: It's true and when I have to write copy for um stuff mm-hmm. for my work. Yep. Um other it's the only other province that actually wants it in both languages.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I like it. I wish I could speak French, but I can't.
1: Je ne peux pas, pas français. Uh, I'm taking lessons.
0: Okay, here's one. It looks like it's coming from Prince Edward Island.
2: Hey there, Dark Bootingers. My name is Greg, and I'm a longtime listener. I live in uh, New Haven, Prince Edward Island, way over there in the East Coast. Um, You know, after I heard that shit apple Mike Brown calling last week, I finally got the push to give you folks a call. So just wanted to, of course, call and uh, thank you for the tremendous show you guys produce every week. And just, I just want to mention something that I think kind of goes overlooked in the world of podcasting. Of course, I'm always impressed with the level of research done for the show. But for me, I think it's the transparency that the research is discussed and cited on the show that's so important, and it's just not buried in the show notes somewhere. So, I, I guess like if we're going to be reasonable consumers of true crime and the weird and all that, I think citing those references on air, whether it's you know books or references or you know, uh, articles or court documents. I just think that's really valuable in telling the stories of these victims in an empathetic way. So I I really appreciate that myself. And I just wanted to leave you uh, maybe with a quick story. Uh, So I teach at a local high school here on PEI, and uh, we have a fairly large population of students who speak English as a second language. And one of the projects I do with these folks is they, uh, they... Create their own mini podcasts, right? So they they research it and they write it and they record it and all that, and it's always a really good experience. And so before they do that, I I get them to listen to some of the podcasts I enjoy, and we talk about what goes well in them, and of course, Dark Poutine always makes an appearance. Um, so then they have a weekend to go home and listen to whatever they want, and they ca- got to come in and discuss it the next week, right? Uh, and so I had I remember it was two years ago. This student, she's lovely girl. Um, she she was really into true crime, too, and she had written down all my recommendations and she went home and, of course, she had listened to a couple episodes of Dark Poutine. Um And when it came time for her to discuss it, she did really good. You know, she summarized the episodes, said what you folks had done so well. And she said, you know, but you know, at, at the end, I, I just had this one question I didn't understand. Why, why did they tell me to go shit in my ass? And I got to tell you, explaining that to students who don't, you know, necessarily speak English as a first language and are of the age they are when they're in high school was uh, quite the experience. Anyway, uh, love the show, guys. Listen every week. And uh, I say this with all sincerity uh, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, go shit in your hat.
0: Well, there you go. Thanks, Greg. That was more awesome than I thought it was going to be.
1: That's great. But, you know, I now feel a responsibility Which is what? Well, if high school students are listening to the podcast, I'm like yeah, trying to like watch myself. Watch yourself? Yeah. Don't you watch yourself I should be less sweary. I'm teaching the kids bad things. I don't swear on the show. I do all the time. Well, sometimes I use the word a-hole a lot. Yeah. Maybe shit once in a while. I like the word fuck too much. (laughs) Well. Thank you, Greg. That was, (laughs) that was good. And yeah, Mike does a lot of research Mm -hmm. and I do some as well.
0: But I, I, I love it that a high school teacher is reminding me how important it is to quote my sources. That's great. You know what? Like it really is. And some people just read stuff off like it's their own. Yeah. And I, I can't do that. There's something in me, perhaps it was the good teaching that Frank Penny, my, uh, high school English teacher gave to me as well. And Stockdale, she was also great always quote your sources. Make sure you're quoting your sources well because okay. if you don't, the people who deserve the credit aren't getting it and you're taking it for yourself, which isn't cool. And you could get sued. And, well, I don't really care about that. I, you know, if someone wants to sue the show, then the show doesn't happen anymore because <laughs> I don't have any money.
1: <laughs> Part of money, speaking of which,
0: we need more patrons. Yeah, we need more patrons. So that's it for voicemails this week. Um, we Those could, are good. Yeah, there, there were some excellent voicemails. Let's save
1: some more for next week.
0: Yeah, we have a lot, but that doesn't mean call in, that- Call in, anyway. We do want you to call in. Yeah. 1-877-327-5786. Did I get it right? PTN. I think I did. I got it right for the first time without looking. <laughs> and so that's 1-877-D-A-R-K-P-T-N. PTN. 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 Again, three, two, seven, five, seven, eight, six. Look at you. Look at me. I remember, I remembered remembered your number. Uh, It must be all the meditation that I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Now on to patron and donut money donor shout outs. So first up from Amherst, Massachusetts, Julia Balkin. Julia Balkin.
1: Hello, Julia. Uh, What does Julia Balkin do? There in. Well, other, other than being an excellent new Patreon, mm-hmm. uh, did you know that Amherst College recently got a new mascot? It did. Because there is a problematic mascot Oh, previously. was
0: it, was it like a, a racially? No,
1: I think it was some dude that, I don't know. Okay, you whatever. You history. Yep. But it's a mammoth.
0: Oh, well, a mammoth.
1: Yeah, the new one is a mammoth.
0: Well, I don't know, some elephants are
1: so she, offended
0: by the hairiness she,
1: of a mammoth. She, she... She designed the mammoth costume and occasionally we'll go there on the field in it and be supporting of the local American football club or whatever we call them.
0: I know a person who used to do um, that kind of thing, like wear those big costumes and that kind of stuff for mascot stuff and said, it is really bloody hot in those things. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them actually have like a built-in air conditioning system. They're so warm.
1: Have you seen those fetishists that like, like to dress up like that?
0: Fetishes? Oh, you mean furries? Yeah. Yeah. My friend Malcolm met a furry in the woods. He was just walking on a walking path that he normally takes up near UBC and out of the forest came a furry. So guaranteed there was another one in there somewhere and they were doing their furry like (laughs) business. In there in the woods.
1: <laughs> anyway, Julia does not do that. Okay. But uh, she created the, the new mammoth costume. Thank you from us to Amherst. There you go.
0: And here's one, uh, this person I actually know. Who? From Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, is my good friend, Alan McGinnis. Alan and I grew up together. And I remember... This is a story that Alan might be upset about. Are you from Bridgewater? I'm, I grew up in Bridgewater, yeah. Okay. Uh, Alan, I, I was born in Halifax. Alan might be upset about me telling this story, but I don't care. Alan's a good guy. He'll get over it. Here's the thing. When Alan was a youngster, he decided that he would mess around in the garage with his dad's
1: Jeep. Okay.
0: And the Jeep was, uh, a standard, a stick shift.
1: Okay, I'm starting to see scene from, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Yeah, pretty day. much. Okay. So he essentially
0: smashed the Jeep into the garage. Oh no. And, uh, our friends, uh, the Zinks lived across the street and remember Alan come running out screaming that his dad is going to kill him.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: But, uh, Alan's a great guy. He's, he's moved back to Bridgewater after years away. He was living in, uh, um, oh gosh, Leamington, Ontario for a long time, but decided to move back to Bridgewater with his wife and young fella. So
1: yeah. A lot of farms near Leamington.
0: Now I know Alan used to work for McDonald's a lot. His dad owned the McDonald's in our hometown. Okay. So, Alan, you know, helped. can
1: I ask you a question? Yep. Go ahead. Is Donald Sutherland from Bridgewater? He is. Yep. My mom went to high school with Donald Sutherland. Really? Yep. I think Alan's just, he's moved back intentionally to run the Donald Sutherland fan club.
0: Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So, Alan is running the Donald Sutherland fan club. You can reach him at We Heart Donald <laughs> and not Trump, and not that one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So thanks Al. Uh, Big Al, he used to have a really great house. He was the first one of all our friends to buy a house.
1: Oh, he was like the first grown up one, was he?
0: Well, yeah, I guess so. He was yeah. the first one who took the chance and bought a house. Yeah. And that was the place we used to party. Oh. There were many, many photos of people passed out on their faces on the floor in Alan's house. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Thanks again, Al. Next up, we have Wilma Schroeder, and she is from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Winnipeg, Manitoba. What does Wilma, not Fred Flintstone's
1: wife, Wilma Schroeder do? You know, she's probably got that all of her life. Yeah, and
0: I just gave it to her again, and I'm really sorry. I
1: apologize, Wilma, on behalf of Dark (laughs) Protein. I think Wilma, I think Wilma owns a little cafe in Osborne Village. Really, like a cat cafe or something. Oh, I like cat cafes. Yeah, and there's like not nice little shops in Osborne Village. There's a cat cafe close to your place. Is there in Tinseltown? Yeah. Oh, I'll take Steve. Yep. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that will not go well. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I think Wilma owns a cafe in Osborne Village. There you go. Mm. Well, that's fun. Thank you for your patreon patronage. Exactly. Uh, I next... wonder if I wonder if she's related to Joel. Joel Schroeder? Yeah, Joel's a good friend of mine and he grew up like just south of Winnipeg, like in Minnesota. Okay. And I think there's like a lot of Schroeders and so Yeah, of, sure. That makes sense. Sort of, because if you think about it actually, right? Like Canada, you know, Vancouver is sort of an extension of-
2: Washington like culturally, State. Culturally,
1: yeah. we're more like Washington State, Northern California. Mm-hmm. You know, the prairies are more like the states below them, like culturally in some ways. Sure, yeah. You know, Toronto is sort of kind of like the East Coast, big city. Right. blah blah And then, you know, you're the wrong side of the country where you're from. It's kind of like Maine and things like that, yep, right? totally. Yeah. yeah. So culturally, I think actually we're, we're more...
0: There are a lot of people who like... For example, Nova Scotia has a lot of folks who are related to people in places like Massachusetts and yeah. New Hampshire. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cause it's just, I think there's like, it's funny cause we're a wide country, but I actually think, you know, we interact more with our American cousins just below us. Yeah. In every spot. right? And
0: human beings tend to migrate, especially in the years before the borders were so solid. Yeah. Uh, they were a little more porous and people were back and forth a yeah. lot more often. mm Next up we have Wendy B and I don't know where Wendy is from. I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm channeling that and hopefully Matthew will come up with that because you should know these things.
1: She's from Utah.
0: Oh, she's from Utah. Yeah. Whereabouts? Salt Lake City or? Uh... Just outside of Salt Lake City. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of fun. Oh, Utah is very warm, especially right now. It's a, it's a really warm is it? place. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and. Yeah, full of deserty kind of things. Okay. And what does Wendy do there
1: in Utah? She owns a car dealership. Really? What mm-hmm. kind of cars? Ones without chrome. Oh, so there it's like Wendy's chrome-free cars.
0: Oh, interesting. I yeah. Wonder why she's so set against chrome. Is it the reflective stuff? With the well, sun no. And?
1: I just started wondering if Mormons. Okay. W- which there's a lot of Mormons in Utah. Yep. For some reason, I started wondering if they're kind of like, um, uh, like, uh... If you're Mormon, we don't mean to offend Oh, you no, no, no. Everything. This is actually a real question. Okay. So I'm wondering if they're like the Mennonites. Hmm. So where I'm from, there are a lot of Mennonites. Okay. And they drive black cars with, and paint the chrome over in black as well. I wonder why. Uh, cause it's too flashy and, oh, that and makes I have, sense. I you actually have some Mormon friends, so I should just ask them. That would be a good idea. Yeah. But anyway, she does, um, Chrome free cars. There you go. Yep. Chrome free cars.
0: <laughs> Thanks Wendy. In Utah. <laughs> Thanks Wendy. <laughs> Next up we have Andre Anne Gervais and she is from Hawkesbury, Ontario and she's our new prime minister for Dark Wow. Return. So thank you. That helps out a lot. Um, it looks like every first of the month people are becoming more and more resentful about the taxation that Patreon has decided to do. And mm-hmm. we lose we're losing probably uh uh between a hundred and two hundred dollars a month. Mm-hmm. Each month, month over month.
1: So, and I think it's my fault.
0: It's, no, it's not your fault at all.
1: Please. Thank you for being coming a prime minister people please do Patreon so I don't feel like It's like, oh, Matthew joined the show and the Patreon went down.
0: Well, I had somebody ask me again, is your old co-host coming back? And the answer is no. The answer is a a very definitive no. And that's all I'm going to say. Well, no, I should say not welcome back either. So no, not (laughs) coming back. (laughs) Anyway. Now we didn't get any donut money this week, but that's okay. That's okay.
1: You and I are both watching our weight this week. We are.
0: We had quinoa and some nice salad that I ordered for us. It was
1: quite delicious, actually. Yeah, it
0: was a little bit of grilled chicken on top, but that is a good protein for us.
1: Yeah, no, it was it was delicious, and you ignored my text because I got into your part of town early. Yeah, I finally discovered, like this, where the food is. Yeah. (laughs) And I went to the Canadian Tire and bought some new, more pots for my balcony. Oh, oh there you go. And uh, I I texted you wondering if you wanted pho. um yeah. but you didn't text back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The crappy tires over there. There's all kinds of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yep. But no, the lunch was really good. Yeah.
0: Crappy tire. My dad used to call it Mickey Mouse tire. <laughs> Mickey Mouse tire. Because everything from there broke. Thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. For your generosity. Generosity. For your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash Poutine. For one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Don't forget my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem is available for pre-order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please give, take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing.
1: Bye, everyone. We love you.
0: Yeah. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg. And, and not no. a bad apple. Not a
1: bad apple. <laughs> don't be
0: a bad apple. I
1: about some bad apples?
0: Or as that one gentleman called me, a shit apple. A shit apple. That shit apple Mike Brown. <laughs> Bye,
1: everybody. Bye.